Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming is sponsored by Montag Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Now retired, Bob Featheringill began no-tilling more than 40 years ago on the highly erosive clay soils around Attica, Ohio. Farming just 25 miles from Lake Erie, Bob developed a strong belief in water conservation and an understanding of the undesirable effects of phosphorus runoff. Despite early setbacks in no-tilling, Bob persisted and eventually developed a system that allowed him to achieve his environmental goals while also attaining good yields and profitability. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, editor Frank Lester talks with Bob about the system he implemented, which involved using an airway, keeping wheat in his rotation, getting his side-dressed nitrogen closer to the row, and more. They also talk about the work Bob did calibrating the finger pickups in seed meters to optimize seed placement. Here's Frank Lester with Bob Featheringill. We're talking to Bob Featheringill in Attica, Ohio today, and you've been farming for a long time. Tell us a little of your history. You grew up in the area where you are? Yeah, yeah, I did. I was born in 43, and the home farm is the same place as what my dad raised his family on. We married in 66, and we purchased the farm that year off of mom and dad and been here ever since. Great. Well, I pulled up an old story we did on you from the year 2004, I think, and you talked about how you had been on the uh, Soil and Water Conservation Board in Seneca County in 79, and you started to take a look at no-till. Why don't you tell me the history of that and how you went from there? Okay, we had a, uh, I guess call it a pilot project up here. I was on the Soil Water Board from Seneca County, and we called it the Honey Creek Watershed Project. What one of my jobs on the board was is go around and talk to farmers in that area because there was some assistance available to those farmers to try some different practices. That really got me motivated in it because I was seeing the soil loss, and this area that I live in right here, we have a tremendous amount of blount soils, very tight soil, but it likes to erode unless you've got it covered or are no-tailing it. That's how we basically got started in the no-tailing. We put our first no-till in in 79, planted in some wheat that I had sowed the previous fall, and amazed me. turned out pretty well, just about as good as a conventional, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just kind of creating my own way here. That's basically how I started, and we liked what we were seeing. We expanded no-till on our acres. Most acres we farmed was around 1,200. We was always in an 800 to 1,200 acre range. Sure. We tried to expand it to all the farms. A couple of landlords was a little reluctant at first, so we basically chiseled that and knocked it down and planted it after a few years, and they didn't protest the no-tilling or minimum tilling. That all worked out well. We had farmed a lot of ground that we called it HEL, highly erosive land, and that blount soil very tight. One thing we did notice down the road about four or five years, I had a consultant, and we noticed that our yields were starting to slip a little bit. And back in those days, we just couldn't get all the cover crop and things out we needed. 
we put an airway in our operation because my thoughts was always if we can infiltrate, we'd only erode. Put the water in the soil, it won't erode off. With the use of the airway on some of our marginal soils, why we was able to accomplish that. We left the residue on top and fractured the soil, allowing water in. And that's one thing, like I say, we did notice. As we got in that fourth and fifth year, we thought everything was going to be healed. It just kind of worked in reverse for us. We needed to address the soil because back in those days, we put out some rye, and rye was hard to get here, and we'd use some weed as cover crops. Then we learned to battle the slugs and battle the uh, army <laughs> worms. Right, right. So this airway, I mean, you, one of the problems you had apparently was you had some compacted soils, right? Yeah, our top profile, when I say that, I'm talking the, the 5 to maybe 8-inch range was getting compacted. When we could get cover crop on there and get some roots down in there, we noticed that we had a lot better infiltration, but we just could not get all the cover crops sowed in the fall. Airplanes weren't available. Sometimes the crop, we couldn't get it off in a timely manner. We harvested a lot of corn back in those days. Tried to have everything cleaned up by Thanksgiving, but in reality, if we were done by the 15th of December, we were happy with it. It really narrowed the window up on us getting cover crops on. I'm a big believer in cover crops. I think every acre ought to be green come spring, but you can't always accomplish that. Right. So you continued to use the airway, right? Right, right. We should put in an explanation here that you ended up being a dealer or a distributor for airway, right? Right, I did. I had some ideas after we seen what the tool was doing, leaving the residue on top, providing that cushion for these heavy rainfalls. I've taken some pictures over the past years. One farm, I stood in the middle of the road after a two-inch rain and took pictures of the neighboring farmer water all over the place, standing all over the soil. I just turned 180 degrees and took pictures of what we were farming, and you didn't see a drop of water on it. So I really felt comfortable with some of those, what we've seen over the years with that, get that water infiltrated. This soils that we farm, drainage is very important. Tile drainage has been very important to us for years. But working with airway, we was able to put some things together. We put together a row crop airway. We put airways together to help with liquid manure and handling liquid manure, getting it to infiltrate without getting into the tile drains. That's one thing the airway did do. It shattered that top five to eight inches, and uh, the manure, the concentration manure, uh, did not get into the tile drain. That was a big plus in our area for a long, long time. We're talking these days about the cover crops being brand new and exciting. You're probably a guy who's been asking what's new about them. You've been using them for years and years, right? Right, right, yep. What do you like to put down as a cover crop? Well, the number one thing for us right here is rye, since it's available. If we've got wheat in the rotation, which I like, but since I'm not... I've retired from farming here. The fellows that's doing the farming don't like wheat as well as I did. With wheat, I could seed the red clover and some medium clovers and stuff in that, and that made a very nice area to, to no-till into. You would take off wheat in July and immediately seed a cover crop? No. Well, yeah, we've done some of that, but the thing was is, you know, everybody was this thing about wheat back to wheat. Rye following wheat just was a no-no. That's one reason we went there using the clover, which uh, I always felt we did get a more nitrogen value out of. 
the long and the short of it is we need to cover the ground up one way or the other. There's a lot of vertical tillage tools out there. I know they're putting seeding boxes and things on. You still have to have the fall that will cooperate with you or the summer. If I was going to seed into wheat stubble, it would be a lagoon if I could find lagoon seed that suited me because of some of the nitrogen values and just to stay away from the grass on grass that we would be doing with rye. And I know a lot of them are using rye now following wheat or no-tilling right into rye and wheat. Like I say, over the years, that was kind of a no-no. Dave Brant and I have been friends forever, and Dave, he's further south than I am by about 150 miles as the crow flies, and he can do things a little bit different. I look at the state of Ohio. I divide the state of Ohio up. We look at the turnpike north, and then we look at Route 30 north, and that's the area that I'm in. And then we look at I-70 to 30. It just seems like the state divide. Dave will be 10 degrees warmer than I am. He'll be in the field a week or two ahead of me. We both have the same type weather. The pattern has changed, I think. I think it's due to Columbus growing on Dave. But he's really getting into a lot of moisture anymore, spring mm-hmm. and fall and summer all the way around. Right. I'm a few years older than you are, but I remember my dad in a farm north of Detroit by 40 miles. We were planting clover as a cover crop back in the late 40s and early 50s. It's not new to me. I've been doing it forever. Right, right. Yep, yep. The news media didn't know what we were doing out here at that time. Now it's a big deal. Did your area flow into Lake Erie or not? Yes. We've got the Sandusky watershed and the Huron watershed, Vermilion watershed area. Actually, where our farm is located is the one I live on. You can stand in one spot if you had a bucket of water and pour it in the watershed that goes to Huron River, or you could turn around to 180 and pour it in the watershed that goes to Sandusky River. Wow. But they both end up in Lake Erie. Right. That's kind of like where we live. We live in a suburb of Milwaukee, 13 miles west, and our suburb has water that half the suburb flows into Lake Michigan and the other half flows 150 miles into the Mississippi River. But it's kind of like the Continental Divide's right in our city here. Right, right. We'll rejoin Frank and Bob in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. Montag Manufacturing is your fertilizing equipment specialist, offering dry, liquid, and complete fertilizer systems, as well as auto steer carts. Montag's precision fertilizer placement solutions will reduce your rate, increase your yield, and assist your stewardship goals. Visit them at montagmfg.com. That's M-O-N-T-A-G-M-F-G.com. Before we get back to the conversation, here's Frank Lesseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. This edition's little fact about no-till is different than most, as it talks about one of the earlier national no-tillage conference events in Cincinnati. The proud owner of a brand new Buick, who was a farmer from La Crosse, Wisconsin, made the one-way, 578-mile journey to Cincinnati for the 2001 event. These were practically the first miles he'd put on the brand new car. Wanting to check his fuel mileage, the grower jotted down the mileage shown on his speedometer as he drove into the underground parking garage at the Hilton Hotel in Cincinnati. 
So imagine his surprise when he picked up the car four days later and saw it had been driven 85 miles while he was attending the no-till conference sessions. Apparently one of the garage workers enjoyed a good time cruising around downtown Cincinnati in a brand new Buick. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Bob Featheringill. You've been able to boost your organic matter by quite a bit, right? Yeah, we have. We had a lot of organic matters in the ones for years. And now if you pull samples and things, we're in the threes. Mm -hmm. Tell me how you got that done. I think leaving the residue, as much of it on top as we possibly could, and just growing better crops also. I remember the time when we used to plant 22, 23,000 plants per acre on corn. And now we're up there in the mid-30s. Puts a lot more residue out there. It's a challenge maybe to handle that residue at times, but you can build organic matter fairly quickly. I always felt when I say quickly, in a matter of 30, 40 years, you can double it basically in our area. A lot of it's just due to the population and the amount of residue we're putting out there from corn. What kind of yields do you get on corn, beans, and wheat? We're not happy if we don't raise 200 bushel corn. Some years that's challenging. Some years we'll see it up there at 220 to 230. Mm -hmm. Soybeans, the last number of years, we've gone from in the 40s up into the 60s now. I hate to give seed companies too much credit, but I really <laughs> think they've come a long ways with some of their hybrids, generics yeah. there. Yeah. I've had a number of people tell me that uh, it's really made a big difference. And I remember years ago, no-till was getting started, and you asked the seed companies, what was the best hybrid for no-till? And they'd say all of them. didn't matter, but they weren't right. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, and this year here, we were very, very wet. Uh, a lot of preventive planting taking place. Planted beans here where I live on the 27th of June, hoping to get somewhere in the 40s and a couple hundred acres of beans, they average 59. Wow, that's pretty good for late planting. Yeah, yeah, that's almost double crop. Right, and you're too far north to be double cropping. Right. Well, that's <laughs> another thing I've done too, Frank, and I think we've talked about it in the past. One thing I did do is for years before the Roundup Ready beans really got out here, and even after they did, a lot of the seed people would have treated soybeans left. We would take the wheat off and sow beans in that wheat stubble, and we had a cover crop there. It didn't cost us much. They Most of the time, they'd sell it to me for market price, and we'd go out there and put a couple hundred thousand seeds out there. There was times we'd harvest them, and other times we wouldn't. One thing I did like to do, even if they wasn't going to make beans, if we had the time, is to run the combine over that ground and cut that straw off again and run the beans that were there through the machine. We'd open up the doors on the combine, and we only done that a couple of times. But it really done a nice job clipping and helped that residue to break down then just sure. by running it through that sure. and using the combine as a spreader, basically. Right. So do you have much continuous corn in your area? No, we don't. No, we don't. Right. Okay. No. One of the thoughts I've had is, you know, there's farmers raising continuous corn and they think they're doing fine, but then the university research shows that you get a yield loss and some other problems with continuous corn. But I've been thinking that these guys were doing continuous corn. If they plant a cover crop, it's kind of like rotating out to another crop, and maybe that's really helping them if they're doing continuous corn. 
Yeah, I think so. They've got a tremendous reservoir there to feed the microbes. As a person looks at this and learns what's really happening, these microbes are so important. The life of the soil, basically. You know, all those earthworms, they go up and drag residue down through the holes. They're doing an excellent job at helping us out and providing a channel for water to run down. Well, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago with John Lundgren, who's been a national no-towage conference speaker and is now running his own farm up in South Dakota and doing research work. And he told me that they had somebody look at the microbes that were in no-till corn, and they came up with 490 different species. And there were only about four that they thought were detrimental to the crop. Others either were favorable or neutral. So it's amazing. And we don't know what's going on under the soil. We're finding out yeah. more every year, but we don't really know. Right. Well, if we only knew what we were messing up all the time, we would really discipline ourselves. Right, right. I'm reading from this story we did in 2004, and you were mentioning that no-till corn earlier on started showing some nitrogen deficiencies. Can you talk about that and how you fixed them? Well, and what we're pretty sure happened, and I mean, that's how, and what we did to fix it, we just moved the nitrogen in closer to the row, but in this blount soil that we have, you put nitrogen out there at 15 inches from the plant, and corn plant grows that crown root out and the cedar roots out. We use 28 most of the time. We just found that it was not moving. The only way we found nitrogen moving was a little bit horizontal, but mostly vertical. The roots, and we done a little testing out here. We put on 220 pounds of nitrogen that year. And the third week of August, it looked like we was going nitrogen deficient a little bit. So we dug some pits, and sure enough, I mean, we had a nice set of roots out there for about 10 inches on each side, but they never really got into that band of nitrogen. It was showing when we test the soil, it looked like we had about 120 pounds of available in, but the plant was actually coming up deficient. Well, at that time, we moved the nitrogen in closer on the corn planter to the row. Our starter, we upped the rate of what we was putting on with the planter, and that helped some. But the thing that we thought really helped us, and we still use them today, was row crop airways. Now we put the nitrogen approximately four inches on both sides of the row, and it's just helped the yield tremendous. We run a row of airway teeth out there at about six and run the cooler just on the inside of that. It's shattered loose. And that air-water ratio in this soil here, it's so tight that we need to keep that air-water ratio there. And by doing that, that's our last shot for air to inject in the soil. We've gained the organic matter. I'm always worried about frozen organic matter and things to the elements, but we haven't lost any ground. We've gained ground as far as organic matter goes, and I think a lot of that is just due to the application we use on nitrogen. We've cut nitrogen rates down now a little below 200 and raising 200 bushel corn. When would you uh, side dress this nitrogen? Basically, as soon as I could get the corn planter out of the field and we had established our population that our stand was there. I never wanted to go out there and side dress before the stand was there. And as soon as we could see the corn, we would start side dressing right. once we had established the stand. Because if you don't, the way we were applying nitrogen isn't a very fast way of applying nitrogen. We did put together a tank now that we pull behind the one airway using a 16-row planter now, and we're using two 8-row side dressers. 
if you got a thousand acres of corn out here, which the boys do run now, actually close to two thousand, you got to have some seat time to get all those acres right. done. But right. we feel it's so important. If a weather comes up against us, we'll run right through the night mm-hmm. to get that nitrogen out there. We've side dressed nitrogen already knee high with those rigs. Whatever we're dealt in the way of weather, we've kind of learned to deal with it over the years. I mean. You can always use something for an excuse, but we right. try to grow from that. And that's one reason we start. Once the stand's established, we'll try to get one rig running for sure and get that side dressing done. Earlier, you mentioned corn hybrids. What do you look for for a hybrid that really do well under no-till conditions? Well, of course, yield is always important. But standability, I just think standability and disease resistance, we just need something to make it through some of these bugs or choke these bugs off. you a believer in GMOs? Are you planting non-GMOs or what? Basically, for I'd say the last 10 years, we've had GMO. This year, we're really looking at going with some non-GMO hybrids and soybeans. We've got some water hemp and polymer going on out here. We did change our herbicide program, and we want to get ahead of that stuff and not let it get ahead of us. I was reading an article in one of the other farm magazines just yesterday, and it was a fellow out of Nebraska who was talking about Palmer AMRAP problems, and he had changed his herbicide, what he was using, but he also said that he thinks cover crops is really helping control that weed. I think he's probably correct. The only thing I could say, we mow our road ditch banks and things like that. Sure. And believe it or not, if I get off of the tractor seat, the mower seat, and do a little walk, and I have found pigweed growing where I have mowed. It's just I'm mowing the top of it off. We mow all our waterways very closely. I mean, every 10 days to two weeks, we get over those waterways. And the big reason being is to try to stay ahead of any weeds. Birds, they'll pick seeds, fly over your farm, deposit it with water and fertilizer at the same time. Birds are spreading a lot of this stuff around we feel in this area. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the No-Till authorities featured in the series, then join us in January for our annual National No-Tillage Conference. Every year we bring together top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most out of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during thought-provoking general sessions, expert-led no-till classrooms, farmer-to-farmer roundtable discussions, and exclusive workshops. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all of the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operations reach new heights. You also got involved in calibrating planter units. Tell me about that. Are you still doing some of that? No, I retired from that also, Frank. Yeah, I started in 93 or 4, I believe it was, with Jim Fritz out at Big John. He put together a computerized test stand that was the first one available. There was other test stands on the markets, but they were belt test stands. And with the computer, we could uh, establish exactly where that seed would hit the ground and our spacing, which became very important. We'd done a lot of work on improving seed meters, and basically back in those days, everything was a finger pickup and a few white planters out here and a few vacuum planters, but mostly everything was finger pickups, and we learned to do things to those finger pickups to eliminate doubles and eliminate skips and 
from there went on, and then I got involved with precision and used a lot of precision parts over the years. I was an independent. I kept saying I was an independent, but we've done a lot of work with precision and helped to improve these seed meters and the drops. And we just learned a lot of things that we could pass on to the farmer. We would do uh, here, the hired man and I, we would do as high as 1,200 finger pickups every spring. Kept us jumping. Normally we'd be in that 800 range, 900 range, but uh, there was one particular year we'd done as high as 1,200. What was your recommendation? Did you have to, should a farm get these done every year or skip a year or what? I look at acres. If they were back in the day of nothing but finger pickups, I wanted to always make sure that we could keep that meter as good as possible. And at that time, if they were running 50 acres per meter, I can get them done every year. Check the brushes, check the tension. One thing I caution guys about, if they weren't happy with something, bring it back, and we just had very little of that. But don't tear that meter apart yourself. <laughs> uh, there was, if I recall, Frank, I think there were, you count the nuts and the bolts and the fingers and the springs and everything, I think there was 57 items in a finger pickup. There was a lot of things there that could be messed up. Yeah. I could see myself working on it and putting it back together and getting it all back together and looking down and there's three parts still there and I hadn't got in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the vacuum, uh, we was able to improve the vacuum from John Deere a bunch with some basically new technology. And I always said that we was able to sell a lot of corn planters for John Deere just because of some of the technology and some of the things we've done over the years to improve that vacuum. But we really could get that vacuum planning. The old vacuum setup, there just wasn't any for sure. Only thing you had to, to work with there was air pressure and vacuum pressure. Once we got into what we call the E-sets, we had some adjustments there, some simulators. We were able to run higher pressures, make sure every seat stayed in every cell, and you got good simulation and very good spacing. Yeah, and I see from this article, and then you said you had a list of more than 35 planter items that can cause either depth or spacing problems. Yeah, yeah. Your down pressure springs, your disc openers, closing wheels. There's just a lot of things on that unit that could cause issues for you. You know, we found some things with closing wheels. There was spike closing wheels, which still a lot of them is used. There's some things there that you can do. I've seen soil where guys just put them on and pinch them together too tight, and I've seen them actually pick soil up and invert soil right over the row, and basically any time you've done that, way well, you usually move the seed. There was just a lot of little things there that we really looked at in this business. I got out of it. I've done it for 22 years. I said, that's long enough. So, <laughs> Right. So the land that you have, you're running out to some guys who are real believers in no-till, right? Yep. Yeah, they better be. <laughs> right. Okay. If they came to you and said, we're not going to rent the land this year, you got to rent somebody else, would you demand that the new people no-till? Yeah, I've got a few guys in mind if that scenario would ever happen or if right. there would be an accident or sickness or anything. I've worked with a lot of the neighboring farmers for a lot of years, and I know who I would want <laughs> and who I wouldn't want. <laughs> right. Well, you've been to the no-till conference a number of times. Uh, any, any idea how many times you've been? Well, I missed twice, Frank. Oh, wow. I missed the very first one because I was working with Monsanto at that time, and the two conferences overlapped. Yep, I remember that. Then I missed one in 96 because I had a 
section of my large intestine removed right at that time. That's the two I missed. Well, you've been a great supporter of ours, and we appreciate it, and always look forward to seeing you at the NOTO conference. Why do you keep going to the NOTO conference every year? It's just one of those things I feel I should. And I still learn things. I mean, I've been at this a long time, but I still learn things. Sometimes it's just I get a little verification on what you're doing is not totally nuts. Right, right. Well, that's important. It's like going to an event. You can learn something. You can see people that are doing what you think is wrong, but making it work. Or the other thing is you can confirm with others what you were doing. So always learn. It's amazing how I made friends over the years there, and you just look forward to seeing those people. You only see them once a year. It's just a good time to see them, and and we stop by a few farms in our travels at times with people I met there, and you always have an excellent staff. We'll never forget Alice. (laughs) Right. She made these work in the early days. What do you say to farmers who said, oh, I tried no-till and I can't make it work? I usually say Start out small. Go back mm-hmm. and try a little bit on some limited acres. I'll stop around and, and we'll evaluate. If you've got a problem, we'll evaluate and see what we can do to help it out. There's not every year that my no-till out yields the neighbors, but the majority of the time we're on top of it. Right. Well, and we're getting to the point where people are finally recognizing that yield's not as important as profit. And even if you got a few less bushel, you probably got less costs into it because of fewer field trips, etc. Yeah, that's very true. Equipment cost is really getting to be anything anymore. I mean, it's just combines are a quarter of a million dollars plus. Corn planters are a quarter of a million dollars plus. It's just cost per acre. It's that bottom line down there, like you say. Right. And you mentioned this earlier, that you might make a change with some soybean varieties. I had somebody recently tell me that they've gone to non-GMO corn because of the traits were costing them so much and they weren't having any problems. What are you doing on the soybeans for this coming year? Well, we're basically going to try a few liberty-length beans that we haven't before. I mean, that's just because of some of the weed pressure we have. The non-GMO, they're paying as high as a, a buck fifty a bushel premium on some of that in this area. The worst thing there is the terminal. They just they worry too much about contamination. You know, they don't want to pay and shut us off and things. And uh, it, a lot of farmers just don't want to take the time to clean that combine out. One thing I've done there, and it seems like it's worked for us. A few times we have had non-GMO is blow it out, open everything up rub the machine up, let it set for 10 minutes and run, and then I stick a water hose in it. It's amazing the amount of beans that will still come out once water gets to flowing. Hmm. You know, they lay in there in hidden spots, and uh, the water gets to them, gets them floating, and they end up coming out. But we always vacuum them out first, and we still find some when we dose water through it. Right. So you're retired. You're getting as old as I am. You're doing anything fun and exciting these days? Uh, chasing the grandkids around. There you go. That's important. I got, I got two grandkids that's graduated from college and two more in college and, and two more juniors in high school. And one, the last one just came along. He's, what, seven years old now, or will be seven years old. We've got him spread out. And Grandma, she loves to do anything they want done. So, <laughs> Right. We have 14 grandchildren. Everyone is different. The oldest, I think, is 30, and the youngest is 11. 
But the thing you got to remember as a grandfather is never put your wife in a position where she has to choose between you and the grandkids because you will lose. <laughs> you will lose, exactly. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. I spent a night at your house, and you put me up for the night, and I think it's one of the most sleepless nights I've ever had because of the trains going by. Tell me about the trains. Well, it's CSX, and eastbound and westbound out here. And we call it east and westbound. I guess it's actually northwest and southeast. But anyways, they tell me they're running as high as 84 per day through here. I've never sat out here and counted them. But we're about 70 feet from the rail. <laughs> uh, when the railroad was put through in the 1860s, my granddad Holmes owned the place. And they had a front porch out here. They were surveying to put this railroad through. And so the story goes. Of course, I wasn't around. Granddad told the survey crew, he said, run them trains right down through here in front of their site and set and watch the steamers go by. <laughs> well, I don't know if he had any influence on it. I don't think he did. But, uh, yeah, we're just 70-some uh, feet from the one rail. Yeah, I always thought if you had a derailment, the train would end up in your bedroom. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we've always hoped that never happened. So far, we haven't. Okay, I'm going to let you go. This was fantastic. Thanks for doing this for me. All right. Good enough. Thanks, Frank. Have okay, a good thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. Somebody recently asked what started the no-till growth in other areas of the world. Years ago at a conference on finding ways to expand the no-till acreage around the world, it was pointed out that women were the key to expanding the no-till acres in Asia. With thousands of Asian families farming small terraced rice paddies, the wives were not only caring for the children, preparing the meals, and doing the daily housekeeping chores, but they were also providing most of the rice paddy labor. Meanwhile, the cultural norm included husbands heading into town each morning to relax, have coffee or a few alcoholic drinks, and converse with other men in the community. The field work in the rice paddies was left to the women. So when it came to the labor-saving benefits of no-till, the village women were the ones most interested and receptive to adopting the newer crop production concept. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Bob Featheringill for today's conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the annual National No-Tillage Conference in January. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Montag Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lester and our entire staff here at Mental Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.